You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 39 through 49. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they both not fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have given us your word, that we have a strong foundation on which to build our lives, to build our church. Lord Jesus, we pray more and more that we would build more on you, and we pray that we might even do that in this short time here together this evening. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening, many of you visiting and are here to celebrate and witness the baptisms that are about to happen. We are looking forward to baptizing these four new brothers and sisters into the name of Jesus and into the life of our church membership tonight. So we have a lot to get to and not very much time to do it. Tonight is going to be uh, this sermon a little shorter than normal because of so much that we have to do. And if you're visiting with us, uh, we're glad you're here. And we have been working through this gospel account of the gospel of Luke, um, the good news of Jesus according to Luke. This is the third and final week that we have spent through Jesus's Sermon on the Plain or his Sermon on the Level Place, a level place where Jesus is preaching to his disciples, those who have come to follow him, to be healed by him, to be taught by him. But this is a level place where all people are welcome. All people are invited to follow him. In the last two weeks, we've seen Jesus paint a picture of an actual level place where money and where acclaim and where power actually aren't a place of spiritual elevation. In fact, those places become, can often become a place of danger because those places can trick people into a place of false security that we might not actually need God for many of our material needs, so then we don't need God for really anything. 
And so Jesus has been teaching us that humility, then the place of going down, then becomes the place or the elevator that brings us to be raised with the resurrection glory of Jesus. And so here he's going to wrap up this sermon with three concluding parables, these real rhetorical hooks and punches that he's going to grab his hearers with and demand both our attention and to demand a response from. If his disciples are following him so that they might become like him, he's going to give three exhortations now in how they ought to, or we as disciples of Jesus, those who are following him, how we ought to become like him. So we're going to see Jesus encourage and even warn us with three things tonight. That we, are ought, that we as his disciples ought to be led by his righteousness, that we then might bear his fruit so that we might endure on his stability. So we're going to think first here about being led by his righteousness. Last week, we saw Jesus give a string of warnings, like when he said, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. He had been warning against using people, how we tend towards using people only in a transactional way, that we like people to be in our lives if they give and return some benefit in our lives. And then when we do that, then we can then, if people become uh, less transactionally beneficial in our life, then we can often stiff arm those people away from or excluding God uh, or excluding people from God, not inviting them into his love, his grace, his forgiveness and mercy. So here he asks, in light of all that, he asks two rhetorical questions. In verse 39 of Luke 6, he tells them this parable, this way, this like side way of thinking. He asks, can a blind man lead a blind man. And then he asks, will they not both fall into a pit? But let's pretend that these aren't rhetorical questions. And he's actually asking these questions, expecting a response, like an audible response from his listeners, which he might actually have been. These might not have actually been rhetorical questions. And so if he's actually uh, expecting a response, perhaps verbally, you can answer this question along with me. Can a blind man lead a blind man? No. Will they both not also fall into a pit? Yes. If you don't understand the love, grace, forgiveness, and mercy of Jesus, Jesus is saying, should you be the one seeking to correct or even exclude people from God based on what you understand to be true about God, what you assume to be true? Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You're just gonna, you're leading someone, a blind person, in the same blindness. You are leading both of you now into a pit where you will both be stuck and unable to climb out. So instead, he says, all you disciples, all of you who have come to be healed by me, to be taught by me, to follow me, he says, verse 40, that, that kind of person, you, a disciple, is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This is both an invitation to continue to become like him and a warning to all of us who are his disciples. Because if all of us, or even if we are not disciples of Jesus, all of us in this world are disciples of something or someone. We are all being led or shaped or formed by something or someone. For some of us, this might be literally another religious teacher or some philosopher, either from teachers or philosophers from centuries past in the books that we might read of theirs, or in contemporary YouTube channels or podcast feeds. For others, we find ourselves wanting to learn and be shaped by politicians or commentators about politics 
or culture, again, in their YouTube channels or their podcast feeds or their substacks or wherever you might be learning from them. Still others look for formation by gurus of financial management or mental well-being or comedy or just those that we follow who are, now listen to this word, who are influencers. They have made it their life to be an influencer, to influence you. This is a disciple maker. I've shared several times something I saw on Twitter back like in 2013, which is a different world. Uh, But I've shared this where one pastor said back then, 10 years ago, when you follow somebody on Twitter, you are inviting them to influence your thought and life as often as they like. So choose wisely. Essentially, we are inviting others to counsel us, to disciple us, to shape us into what we think the good and the flourishing life is. Now, though, you don't even have to deliberately follow someone specific on YouTube or on TikTok or on Instagram. The algorithm just chooses for you how it would like to counsel you, to disciple you, to shape you into what they think or it thinks the good and the flourishing life is. Now, I'm not saying that all Christians must get rid of those social media feeds, though for some of us that might be wise, but that we must absolutely be aware of the ways in which we are just subconsciously being formed and shaped and influenced into what we think the good life is. Jesus is calling his people to be shaped and formed, not by others, but by him, by his righteousness, by his love, his grace, forgiveness, and mercy. So that what? So that those disciples of Jesus can then just live privately holy lives? No. This very famous bit, uh, this next part gets misinterpreted all the time, but we must not miss the point of this. He says in verse 41, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now we lose the punch of this because it's maybe so well known to many of us, but this is actually meant to be funny. Jesus is a funny guy. He's given us one guy, this, this illustri- illustrative guy here, and this one guy is sta- standing over here, and he's saying, hey, to another guy, you got something in your eye. Except maybe if you could see this, see this played out, here's this guy, and it's almost like a comic book. Like, if you could just see him straight on, you might be seeing these big round circles over his eye. And then when he turns, your perspective changes, and you can see that he's got like three or four foot logs coming out of his eyes. Or perhaps even more literally, he's got like a a cut plank of wood, like two by sixes, just coming right out of his eyeballs or something. Well, this guy over here, he's got like a speck of sawdust in his eye. And yet this guy with two by sixes coming out of his eye is trying to take with tweezers like one speck of sawdust out of another man's eye. Now where we get this wrong, especially using Matthew's version of this teaching where it comes just after judge not lest you be judged, is to perhaps come to this text of Jesus's and say, we must never ever make any moral judgments on anyone's life ever. Never make any comments about morality or unrighteousness, and then perhaps 
If I'm on the receiving end of this kind of thing, I might say, only God can judge me. How dare you make any comment about my life? Get that log out of your own eye, man. Who are you to say anything about my life or what you think is right or wrong? But this entirely misses the point. Jesus tells his disciple to first consider themselves in ongoing self-critical reflection, in ongoing increasing holiness, becoming like Jesus, being led by his righteousness instead of just being selectively focusing on the sins of others. That's hypocritical. You're focusing on sins of others while not focusing on yourself. But keep following Jesus. Keep being led by his righteousness so that those two by sixes, those like six foot two by sixes, become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. The planks become smaller and they eventually go away so that you can help your brother with the sawdust in his eyes. It's often been said that Jesus' teaching here is the exact same as like the flight attendants in pre-flight safety instructions, where we all have heard them say, in case of emergency, air masks will drop from above. If you are traveling with a minor, please put on your own mask before helping the minor, right? You must be able to breathe before you help someone else. Jesus is saying the exact same thing here. Become like Jesus so that you can help others become like Jesus. We must become self-critical before we can help others. But in the life of the church, we actually invite the voice. We actually invite the help of others. Kyle's already mentioned this, but in a few moments, we're going to observe and welcome four new disciples, learners, followers of Jesus into the life of our church by asking them two questions that will emphasize that while the Christian faith is personal, it is not private. We're going to ask them, do you now trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and as the fulfillment of all of God's promises, even eternal life? And then we're going to ask, do you intend with God's help to obey Jesus' teaching and follow him to be his disciple in the fellowship of his church? Churches of Jesus are made up of individuals who have personally come to faith in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus because they recognize their own unrighteousness. They recognize their great need, their need for Jesus's life for them, their need for Jesus's death for them to be united to him in life and death and resurrection. They are sinners separated from God in desperate need of his love, his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness. But God, while he is saving individuals, he saves a people to himself. He saves a family for himself. And so we then depend on each other and invite one another for help, for more and more of the righteousness of Jesus to settle deeply in our hearts and our souls and our minds. So we, as his people, are led by his righteousness. But now secondly, we are led by his righteousness, not for righteousness sake alone, but so that it might do something. So that secondly now, we might bear his fruit He says in verse 43, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Now, I don't know how many times I've shared Paul Paul Tripp's illustration here about fruit, but I think it's been a couple of years, and several of you are visiting here for the first time, so I'm just going to say it again. We once had a backyard apple tree in our last house, and it was producing a bunch of bad fruit. It was dying. This tree was dying. And if 
we wanted to, Marcy could have asked me to do something about this tree, like see if you can save this tree. And I could have, if I wanted to, I could have gone to Smith's and bought like, I don't know, a hundred gala apples brought the gala apples home and went out with a ladder and a staple gun and put up the ladder and then just started stapling all of these new, fresh, beautiful, crisp, red gala apples on the tree. Went back in, sat on the couch, and she says, have you fixed it? I fixed it. Just look. It's beautiful. Go pick an apple. It will be delicious. Now, everything will look good and healthy there from a distance, and we will have apples on the tree, but do we have a healthy apple tree? No. It's a lie. It's deceptive. It's short-visioned and short-term. This is a ridiculous scenario, and then one that none of us would ever try for our own backyard apple trees. We would never do this. But how often do we walk out of here, out of church on a Sunday, or just walking about in our own lives, operating in the same exact scenario? Just trying to staple on a little self-control, trying to staple on a little kindness, or grace, or mercy, or love. I'm going to make it look like I'm kind and patient to everyone around, or at least those who are observing my life from like 100 feet away. If they get closer, they will not see that I'm very patient. I'm going to cover all the spiritual rot inside with something that looks good for people to see from a distance, and that might be short-term delicious. I might even perhaps try to convince myself that the tree of my life is actually healthy by stapling on some gentleness, some self-control. Today, by sheer willpower, I'm going to force myself to experience peace. I am so anxious, but right now, today, peace. I can, I can, I can experience this for myself. I'm going to try real hard. Today, by sheer willpower, I am not going to lose my temper with my siblings or with my children or with my spouse. Today, by sheer willpower, I'm not going to succumb to that drug or that bottle or that pornography on my phone again. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And then it happened again. A bad tree doesn't produce good fruit by willpower. A thorn bush does not produce figs. A bramble bush does not produce grapes. What the life of the bush is, what the life of the tree is on the inside, is what produces fruit. We do not focus on fruit. We focus on the life inside. And this is what Jesus' whole teaching on in John 15 is about. Abide in me, stay attached to me, and I will abide in you. I will produce life. I will produce fruit. When we begin to get the cart before the horse is when we think, how can I produce fruit in my life? No, 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 no. How can I have Jesus in my life? And he will produce fruit. Verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus doesn't say this to get us to analyze every single word or action or thought in our life. And if they don't, every single word or thought or action in our life does not align with that of Jesus, then we must therefore not have the life of Christ. It isn't healthy to look at like every up and down of the yo-yo of our spiritual lives, the varying degrees moment by moment or even week by week or month by month of our faith and love for Jesus. And yet, 
The yo-yo of our life should actually look like the up and downs of a man who is still walking up a flight of stairs. This year's lowest lows are still higher than the lows of five years ago, certainly of 20 years ago. That he, the life of Jesus, turns death into life. He turns graves into gardens. He turns rotting branches into fruit-bearing, life-giving trees. By his life, by his love, by his spirit. And so Jesus then concludes this section that if you are tempted toward doubt, if you are tempted toward spiritual anxiety in this section, here, oh no, I don't have enough fruit in my life. I must not be of Jesus. Well, then he moves straight on to a next section that we might endure on his stability. Verse 46, he says, now, now hang on everybody. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you call me master and then not do what I tell you to do? Am I really your master? Are you really my disciple? If you do not listen, if you do not obey, if you do not follow me? Again, I think a rhetorical question, but maybe he's expecting an audible response. Am, are you my disciple? Am I really your master if you do not do what I tell you to do? Jesus is not teaching a salvation of good works, of obedience, of holy living. But as has often been said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. The disciples of Jesus follow him, become like him. He goes on in verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, his words, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately the house fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Now, it's pretty easy to build a house that as long as the conditions around it are perfect, that that house will be a fairly good, a fairly reliable house. As long as it never gets windy. As long as the ground underneath the house never settles, never moves, as long as there is never any rain, like as long as any of those things never happen, I think even I could go to Lowe's and build a decent shelter for myself that would do what I needed it to do. Even me. Some of you might think, no, I don't think you could, but I think I could. And honestly, wouldn't that be a pretty good idea? Like, if I expected none of these things to happen, why waste the time? Why pay others to do a lot more work that is way more expensive than what I could just go buy for myself on one trip to Lowe's? And honestly, I could probably get it done in just a few hours instead of taking days, weeks, months, years to build a house. Just think about what I could do with all of those extra months and years that is more fun after just spending a couple of hours on something rather than a couple of years. I could hang out with more people. I could have more time for myself, have more time for leisure. I could just enjoy life instead of working through life. But Jesus says what we all know, that that would be so short-sightedly ridiculous. We all know that there will be wind 
Remember last Sunday? It was crazy. And the house that I built at Lowe's or from Lowe's would have blown over. I guarantee it. The ground will settle, will move. There will be rain. There will be storms in your life. I guarantee it. To say otherwise is to be naively optimistic, unrealistic. There will be loss. There will be ongoing anxiety. There will be difficulty relationally, vocationally, educationally. There will be so much pain and struggle in this life. Many of you are experiencing it right now. And when Jesus, or what Jesus is saying is when those trials, when those difficulties comes, will you have built your house on something that will last? Will you have devoted yourself to knowing God, to understanding and obeying the Son, to walking with the Spirit? Or will the leisure, will the enjoyment of life, will the teaching of the influencers in your life built you something on which your life will last? What are you building on? Whom are you building on? What are you building on individually? What are we building on corporately as a church, as his people? As we move into our time of baptisms, we're going to hear the testimonies of four people who are saying, now and for the rest of their lives, that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. They're saying that they're not building their lives on their own moral perfection, their own righteousness, but on his, in his oath, his covenant, his blood, which supports me in the overwhelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is my hope and stay. And that when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground, every other thing that promises security in my life is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Will we build our lives on Jesus, on his righteousness, on his life-changing, fruit-producing righteousness so that we might endure individually and together as a people? Let's pray that we would. Our Father, we do pray that you would build us, that you would build us on the word of Christ, that we might be strong and steady and secure, a building, not physical building, but of people, your living stones, your living bricks, that you might build your church upon your life and word, Lord Jesus, the cornerstone, that we might invite others in, that we might live out a gospel faith, a persuasive proclamation of who you are and what you've done to the lives of others around us. Might you cause us to grow in holiness, grow in righteousness, grow in care for one another, agreeing with you about our sin and becoming more and more more like you, Lord Jesus. We pray this, that you might get great glory about what you have done in the lives of your people and that we might experience more and more joy, more and more contentment, more and more trust in who you are and what you've done. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. 
hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.